let me set the stage for this book. I want you to know uh, how Paul was writing and who he was writing to. He had never been to the city of Coloss. Um, it was not a church that he planted. And every other book we read, he was closely associated with them. He was not the father of that church, but he was the grandfather. Because he had planted uh, a church called Ephesus. That church, uh, if, you know, you see the book of Ephesians, he wrote to that church. He started that church, and this was a plant out of that church. So Coloss, this new church that he's writing to, he feels like the spiritual grandpa, and he gets a preacher who shows up earlier in this book, and he's telling him all the good things that are happening with the Colossians. There are people getting saved. The word of God is spreading. There are incredible things happening, and Paul is so happy to hear that. So he's writing this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to encourage that new young church. But this pastor also told him, we have trouble in that city. Because the Gnostics, that's a G-N word, Gnostics um, are people who believed in the worship of spirits and angels and they brought all religions together. And sometimes you think this book written 2,000 years ago doesn't apply to today. How about that, huh? They're saying all the religions, you know, there's no one that's right and they should all come together. So Paul's not only writing to encourage the Colossians, he's writing to warn them not to be led astray by these heretics who were saying that Jesus was just spirit and not really a person who died on a cross and was resurrected. He's telling them in this book, Jesus is the one way, the truth, and the life, and you need to follow him. Syncretism is something that's happening in America. You know, I see that bumper sticker, coexist. Have you seen that one with all the religions? And, you know, it's one thing to be civil and, and get along. I totally agree with that. Uh, but the, the, it seems that the spirit of it is to say all those religions are equal. Well, listen, we're not religious here. We don't believe uh, in, in religion as the way. We believe in relationship with Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying to these people in this book is, don't get syncretic on us. And here's what syncretism is. As a matter of fact, when I was in Mexico several years ago, I, I saw this on a missions trip. Uh, but syncretism means the blending together of all religions. And that's what America is trying to do right now. We're having a lot of pressure of people saying, you know, Baha'i faith is the closest of, of all those that are trying to blend it. But now, now as a culture as a whole, it's starting to happen. And it's interesting. Um, in, in Mexico City years ago, we had a team of about 100 kids that I was helping lead there. And uh, the missionary took us to uh, one of the Catholic temples. And on the way, we saw a guy literally on his knees like this. He must have been a quarter mile from the temple. And he was moving along like this on the sidewalk. Well, I said to the missionary, what's that about? And he said, well, he's paying the price. He's penance for his sins there. And he's going to crawl all the way to the temple. He said, sometimes people get to that temple trying to pay for their own sins. And they're, they're just a bloody mess. Uh, they've, come, they've come so far. He said, he must have done something pretty bad. He's, he's trying to work it out. And I, just, I said, pull over. Let's tell him about grace. You know, these guys need to know about grace here. Then we get to the temple. And we go up this huge bit of stairs. It seemed like it was a half mile up the stairs. We get to this huge Catholic temple. And all across the top of it, all the way around, were stars and the moon and symbols from different religions. And I said, what is that about? And he said, well, the Catholics have, uh, have moved into syncretism here in Mexico. And so there's a blending together of all the religions. And it had happened there. And it had, it had become pervasive to some degree in the Catholic church. Well, that's what was, they were trying to get them to do in Ephesus, is to buy into other religions. And uh, that's what's happened in our culture today. So Paul writes this in the context of great things happening, 
but be careful and don't buy into all those lies. That's the atmosphere from which the Holy Spirit penned this book through him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would come right now and move upon us. Lord, it's, it's one thing to uh, come in and just show up for church, but it's another thing when you show up. And you said where two or three are joined together, I'll be there in their midst. And Lord, uh, here we are. We ask you to come illuminate the truth of your word and the truth of your son, Jesus Christ, your grace and your power so that we might grow in you. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So I, I wanna look at the, the last part of this first chapter today as we get into this series, Live the Life, is the title of this sermon. And there are three things that I wanna pull out here, that three things that God wants us to do. And here's the first, to pray for each other. Look what Paul does, this mature apostle of God For this reason, he says, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. So he's praying for others. Now, I I just want to point out, he's never met these people. He doesn't know them. There's something of maturity in praying for others and not just praying for yourself or praying for people that you're close to. This is a mature prayer. We've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We pray kind of this way, Lord, help my back. It's just bad and I I just really need help and I don't want to exercise. So would you just help it? And 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 then we pray, Lord, help help our relationship, help my relationship with this person. And and those prayers aren't bad. I'm I'm mocking that in a sense, but I, I don't want to diss those prayers or disrespect that thought or help help me get a new car, we'll pray. You might need a new car. Sometimes you don't and you pray it anyway. But but we tend to pray things for ourselves or for people close to us. We might even pray for their needs and that's admirable. The Bible says to lay hands on the, on the sick and to pray for those who are downcast and wounded and hurting. And those, those are prayers that are good but this is another level of prayer here. This is a prayer that is not for yourself or someone you're close to but for someone who's doing really good away from you. What? Well, let me, let me explain. 1 Timothy 2.1 rather, I urge you first of all to pray for all people, and this is to believers, ask God to help them intercede on their behalf, give thanks for them. Ephesians 6.18 says it again, pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion, stay alert and be persistent in your prayer for all believers. So all people, in 1 Timothy 2, all believers Paul's praying for these people in Colossians. And then if you look at the first part of the chapter in verse three of Colossians one there, he says, we always thank God the Father when we pray for you. He's thanking God for people who are doing well and praying for them, praying things like, Lord, fill them with your knowledge and your spirit and your wisdom and your understanding. Thank you for what they're doing and the good work that's happening there. Now, when you hear or see someone doing well, here's a question for us. Do we thank God for them and pray for them? And, and here, here's, here's what I mean by that. Um, did you know that the enemy wants to attack people the most that are doing the most damage to his work? Right? I mean, you, you, you know, you wonder why you have a trial. Look through the Bible and look at Elijah and Joseph and Jesus and Paul and you look at all the trials they went through it was warfare. It was spiritual warfare, not, not earthly realm, but heavenly realm because the world is being changed and people are coming to Christ. 
And people are turning their hearts to God as these men and women of God move forward. As you look at the struggle that Esther went through to save people in the battle when she walked into the room and she might die, but she was willing. I mean, those are struggles and trials. Did you know that the enemy saves his greatest attacks for the ones who are doing the best for the Lord? Now, that's a little bit of perspective of why you need to pray for people that are doing well. I went to four churches while I was gone. Two of them in this area. I went to... uh, Solid Rock and South Lake, great churches. I went to Rock Harbor in Costa Mesa, California, and I went to New Life in Rainier. All of those churches are amazing, and I prayed for every one of those churches and preachers when I saw it. It's so cool to walk into a place where the word of God is being lifted up, where worship is happening. And I prayed for those young pastors in uh, California that the Lord would give them strength because there's thousands that are coming and they're accurately dividing the word and they're leading people. And I know that those guys who have little kids and busy lives, I know that they're being attacked by the enemy. And I want the Lord to cover them and to shield them and to bless them. And here's a question for us. Do we do that? Well, I don't have time for that. I barely can pray for myself. When we grow up in Jesus, we come to a place where we pray for people who are doing well, even that we don't know well. And here's the deal. Your prayers make a difference. God has ordained it. He's willed it that things will happen in such a way that when we pray, his power, protection, and blessing will be released. It's just the way it is. So you can't think, well, my prayers don't mean a whole lot. Your prayers mean a ton. They mean a ton. When you lift up a prayer for someone that is, yes, even doing well, someone that you admire, someone that has had great things happen in God, you, you know, I, I see Joel Osteen and I like him. I don't agree with everything about Joel Osteen, but I don't agree. Karen and I don't agree on everything theologically. She's coming along, but, but we, don't, we don't agree. <laughs> she's saying I'm coming along. That's what, she's, that's what she's saying there. But thank God for good works that are happening everywhere. Jesus being lifted up. There's a right spirit. There's, there, there's good things. And why can't we go beyond the immature level of just focus on self because really, isn't that what your two-year-old, three-year-old does? I mean, they, they don't have any perspective beyond self, right? And, and there's a maturity in Christ that when we get beyond uh, me, mine, why, you know, and it's all about us and we start to pray for others that are doing well, that is just powerful to thank the Lord for them. And here's what happens. When we pray for them, not only does the Lord cover them, but he builds us up. He strengthens us. We get joy in our hearts because we're doing his perfect will uh, when we thank God for these people. And even the great apostle Paul, the guy who's penning this word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we're reading today in Colossians, look what he says in Romans. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. What? What? If the Apostle Paul knows the importance of how he needs prayer, we all need prayer, don't we? And then he says, pray for us. In Hebrews, we're sure that we have a clear conscience and we desire to live honorably in every way. And he's saying, would you pray for me that I would live honorably in every way? Now this could come across as cocky, but I don't mean it that way. I just want to humbly ask you today if you would pray for me. I want to live honorably in every way. I want to do the Lord's will. And when attacks come from the enemy, I just want to move right through them in the spirit and do what God says. 
and keep my heart in the right place and live righteous and be a blessing to my wife and my children and to you. Would you pray for me? That I would live, even as Paul is saying here, in an honorable way. I love that prayer, that I would understand with spiritual knowledge and wisdom what is God's will and God's direction. I'd appreciate it if you would pray for me that way. Someone once said, I don't understand much about prayer. I just know this, when I pray, God does amazing things, and when I don't pray, not much happens. God has willed it. He releases his work and his power and his spirit when we pray. So when you pray for others, you become a big part of what God's doing through them. Hey, I, I, I promise you, you think of all these great men and women of God, there are prayer warriors behind them and they'd never rise to do what they're doing without the prayers of those who are silently, non-visibly doing the work of God in a prayer closet somewhere. Have you heard of Charles Finney? He was a lawyer who came to Jesus Christ. He preached in the latter part of the uh, 19th century. He died in 1875. But he preached in New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and the New England states. And he had an amazing impact with his ministry. During those 50 years, uh, a remarkable number of people came to Christ. And, and probably his most notable revival took place in Rochester, New York, where thousands came to Jesus. Think of that, a major revival in New York City. They shut down the bars uh, because nobody was coming. So many people got saved. And, and um, that revival's talked about a lot. And, and you may have heard of Charles Finney. If you know anything about church history, you've heard of Charles Finney. But, but have you heard of Daniel Nash? Let me talk to you about him for just a moment. At the age of 40, he became the pastor of a Presbyterian church. And during his first year there as pastor, about 70 people got saved, which is pretty, pretty incredible in that little community. But not long after, uh, there was a, a church fissure and the, the church voted him out as pastor, and he became discouraged. After he was voted out, he had a serious eye infection, and he was relegated to the darkness of a room where he couldn't have light on his eye for a few weeks, dealing with the depression of a church that he loved that didn't want him anymore, and a sickness that he couldn't even let light into the room with. And here's what he did. He just went deep into prayer. And weeks later, when he came out, it would be the beginning of one of the greatest prayer evangelism ministries ever birthed out of his pain. In the last seven years of his life, he joined together with Charles Finney, that one that everyone knows about. And he would go into a city three or four weeks earlier than Finney would show up. And he would look for two or three people who would covenant with him to pray intensely in the next few weeks before the revival inevitably more people would show up and soon rooms would be filled and, filled and prayer would go on for weeks before Finney showed up. And then when Finney showed up, the power of God was unleashed and salvation would take place. As a matter of fact, the results were amazing. Over a half a million people came to Jesus Christ through Charles Finney's ministry. When Daniel Nash died, Charles Finney stopped his evangelism crusades within three months. Who knows Daniel Nash? 
I think it's seven sons of Sceva in the Bible where they, were, they heard Paul casting out demons and so they, they, they started to cast out demons and they didn't know God. They weren't connected with God and they started to pray and they mentioned the name of Paul and one of the demons spoke. I mean, they actually beat the seven sons of Sceva up. The demon said, we've heard of Paul, but we haven't heard of you. I found it interesting that in one of those cities, Daniel Nash was never public. He would stay behind the scenes even during the crusade and pray for the conviction and power of God to fall while the meeting was happening. He never went in. He prayed during the meeting. But in one city, they burned effigies of Charles Finney and Daniel Nash. Nobody knew Daniel Nash. You want to know somebody who knew Daniel Nash? The devil. (laughs) Daniel Nash wasn't known on this earth very much, but in the heavenly and in the spiritual realm, he was known. And I think there's a good question to ask ourselves. Would we rather be known in this world by people or would we rather be made known in heaven by God? This public thing, I, don't, I think when we get to heaven, the, the, the whole, the, the spectrum of, of the public side of what we did and how many people knew it, it won't be a big deal at all. But God sees all those things that are done by those who are faithful in that prayer closet, privately. And I just want you to know that your prayers make an amazing difference for people that's doing God's work. Let's pray, not only for ourselves, our families, but let's pray for others. And let's thank God for those who are doing well and ask God to do even more through them. Second thought, live a life that bears fruit. I think it's, I I just think it's great you're here. I, I just love it when I walk in and there are people because there, there, you know, I've been places where there weren't people. And uh, I, I think it's so cool that, that, that you're here to receive. But I, but I wonder sometimes as, as believers, do we have a focus of bearing fruit in our lives? Or are we just showing up so we can be covered from our hard stuff? I don't know, maybe paying the quota or our time to get in. You know, I, I don't know how people think or what they think. But my hope would be that we're here to cultivate the soil so that we can grow fruit. And, and here's an emphasis that the Bible tells us. God says, I want you to live a life that bears fruit. Let's talk about that. Colossians 1.10, and we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. What is what is fruit for the Christian, right? Because that's kind of weird. You know, apples, oranges, it's got to be something tangible, not tangerine. And, and, and so as, as, as we look at the Bible, let's look at a few places and a few things that are mentioned as fruit. Converts, leading people to the Lord is mentioned as fruit in the Bible. Uh, Paul spoke of the household of Stephanus as the first fruits of Achaia in 1 Corinthians. And then uh, this, this might surprise you. And, and I think this is pretty easy fruit to bear and we, all, we ought to have this on our lips. Um, the, the, the fruit of our lips in praise. That's what the Bible says, that when we praise, it's fruit. So if you walk through these doors today and you were ready to worship when you came in, not saying, you know, move me so I can, I can jump in. If you walk in and you start worshiping the Lord right away, the fruit of your lips is praise unto the Lord it's fruit. Isn't that cool? That's fruit that's easier to bear for, for all of us, isn't it? So, so that's something to think about that's considered fruit. Giving money or offerings is, is called fruit in the Bible. If you look at Hebrews 
I'm sorry, Romans 15, uh, you'll see a passage where they gave to the poor in a city and it says in, in one of those scriptures that they have received fruit. The offering was fruit from believers. Godly living is fruit. And that's what this passage speaks about. The, the peaceful fruit of righteousness, it says in Hebrews 12. And, and what righteous means is to act right. It has to do with behavior. And, and when God shows up, you know, you know, you're not saved because of your behavior, but when you get saved, your behavior changes and it's supposed to get better. And God sanctifies you and you get better all the way along. I mean, that's the way it works. He builds you up, you grow, you get strengthened and, and, and you do more and more that, that is his will when it comes to what this word says. And then there's the holy attitudes mentioned, what we call the fruit of the spirit. The most obvious one, those others might surprise you a little bit that they're mentioned as uh, fruit. But Galatians 5 mentions love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, uh, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are all fruits. So as we look at this list, Praise from our mouth, giving offerings, godly, uh, righteous, living, holy attitudes, and, and, and winning people to the Lord. Here's, I think it'd be good for us to ask as we look at that list, just ask yourself, am I bearing fruit? I think that's a good question. And if you're not, nobody's here to condemn you. Uh, I think we've all had seasons or times in our life when we weren't bearing fruit. Um, and yet, the word says, I want you to live in such a way that you bear fruit. This is what God wants. And here's the thing about bearing fruit. The best way to live is to bear fruit. It's the most fulfilling life and the most exciting life and it's a great adventure that you could ever have. You feel better because you're in the plan of God, you're doing the will of God and it's an incredible feeling to know that the Lord used you to bring about something of his good. And so, so God says, hey, I want you to, uh, to bear fruit. Now, so that's what fruit is. How, what, what cultivates the soil for a believer to bear fruit? What produces fruit in a believer's life? Let's look at a few things that, that, that will help you get to a spot where suddenly you'll find yourself bearing fruit. The first is this, a close relationship with Jesus. It says in John 15, 4, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. A branch cannot produce fruit alone, but must remain in the vine. In the same way, you cannot produce produce fruit alone but must remain in me I am the vine and you are the branches if you remain in me if any rather remain in me and I remain in them they will produce much fruit so when we're in Christ when we're in good relationship with him we bear fruit but without me they can do nothing so the key to knowing God's heart is having a relationship with him right if you know Jesus and you have close relationship with him, you'll know his heart and you'll be moved by the things that move him. Uh, Karen and I take walks together and we've taken several walks just, just recently and I, I love our walks. Uh, and it's not, it's not about the walk to me, it's, it's about being with Karen. Because when we walk, we talk together. And it seems like we're so busy, you know, even busy with the, the ministry and family and just, we're just like you, we're just busy all the time. Um, you, you cannot connect at the highest level at times if, if, if you're not careful, you just, you, you can grow distant in a marriage. You're so busy with good things that you're not connected with your spouse. So I, I just like to, you know, we have a coffee time sometimes where we sit and talk, but sometimes we just walk together. And um, I talk a lot 
when we walk and she listens and, th- and then she talks. And when she talks, I-, I begin to discover what's on her heart and mind and what she's feeling right now. I can rejoice in the things she's rejoicing in. I can pray with the things that she has concerns about. And, and she has a sen- sensitivity that, that would reveal things that are even happening in our family that I, I don't have a clue, you know. But when she talks, I start to discover and it, it just makes me better. And I, I know who Karen is because I spend time with her and we talk. If you were to ask me, does Joe Smith like Disneyland, I would say, I don't know Joe. I don't, I don't know if he likes Disneyland or not. Or not. But, it, but if you ask me if Karen Russell likes Disneyland, because I've been there with her, I can tell you she is as happy as happy can be when she's at Disneyland. When, you know those rides, they take the pictures at the end, Karen is always smiling, you know. I'm like, because I'm sick, you know, and she just has a big smile that never changes. And I, I, is that a grimace that looks like a smile? No, I'm smiling. She loves that atmosphere. She loves Main Street, fireworks. She's happy there. Now, if you ask Karen if her husband, Stan, likes Disneyland, she'd say, well, he hates standing in line. He doesn't like paying $20 for a corn dog and a Coke. And he gets sick on all the rides that are fast. But other than that, he loves Disneyland. Now, we end up going quite a bit, and I'll tell you why, because my whole family likes it. I, I'm not as fond as they are, but I love it when they're having a good time. So I, I like to go. But you know, when you spend time with people, their heart is revealed, and you start to carry and understand what they're feeling and what they're about. And it's true when you take the same thing and extrapolate it into your walk with God. You walk with Jesus, and you'll start to discover his heart. I heard a preacher a long time ago named James saying that in the morning he gets up and he makes a cup of coffee and he sits down in his black leather chair. He opens the Bible and he reads the Bible. Nobody's awake, it's just him and the Lord. And he closes that Bible and he doesn't even kneel down. He just sits there drinking his coffee and talking to the Lord. And he said, one morning I felt I heard the Lord speak to my heart and say, James, I like the way you come to me. He's sitting there talking to God with his coffee. Coffee's not necessary, but it helps some of you. So, (laughs) but James, when he preaches, he reveals the heart of God. You know why? Because he's been with him. And when, when you're walking with Jesus, when you're praying and talking to him, he'll reveal his heart to you. And let me tell you one of the main things in his heart, it's, It's people. It's souls. People who don't know him that he came for. Spending time in prayer, walking with Jesus, helps you to bear fruit. Another thing that helps, we see in this passage in verse 10, is increasing in the knowledge of God. Remember the Gnostics, they were super spiritual people, but they didn't know God. Now, these, these people had really no relationship with Jesus, but you can, you can see super knowledge people even in the church, can't you? I mean, I, I, the word sick comes to mind. Sick, I mean, comes to mind, but I, I, it's too strong probably. They make me uncomfortable. How about that? 
Uh, there are people who say, you know, when it comes to spiritual knowledge in the Bible, I'm up here. And the rest of you, lowly peons, are down here. Well, they have a blind spot right away, and I'll tell you what it is, pride. It seems like the people who think they know the most are people who know the least because their spirit's not right. It seems like people who get closer to God and are deeper in the word have a humble spirit and understand their need to know still yet more. It seems like the closer you get, the more you realize, man, there's more in Jesus. And these people in this passage had knowledge, but sometimes it's book knowledge that people have, and they think they're so much smarter than everyone else. I remember years ago um, being in California and seeing a sweatshirt uh, when we were on the campus of UCLA that, that, that said, come to the light. And I, you know, I look closely to see if there's a scripture. You know, sometimes I have a little scripture down below, and it was just, the light was education, not Jesus. Did you know that UCLA's roots have some Christian moorings way back there? The light used to be Jesus, but it's education now. And Paul's speaking to the Colossians saying, look, you have these super spiritual people who are actually getting to the place where they know so much they're making up their own religions. But let me tell you the knowledge you need to increase in. You need to increase in the true knowledge of God. And here it is for us, church. One of the things that concerns me um, most, you know, I, I believe, my belief is that America is becoming Europeanized and our faith is starting to look much like Europe's. And they have large, beautiful temples that are empty and we may be headed there if we're not careful. Church is something historically that was once significant and on the map, but now there's just a few buildings that are markers and there hasn't been a lot happening there. I've heard some rumblings that some good things of revival are starting to happen again. But what happened is they became syncretic and they opened their hearts to everything. You know you can be so open-minded that your brains fall out? Open-minded is good unless you just become stupid, you know? You're so open-minded. And as I, as I look at the church, I, I have a concern. Here's why I think we could be in trouble if, if we're not careful in America. Um, because we have preachers who won't give the full revelation anymore. Because they they, they, there's tickling ears that they would rather be involved in. So they won't say the hard things. Don't touch the tough topics. People might not come. Well, the problem is without a revelation, the people perish, the Bible says. And the preachers are supposed to give the revelation. And if they don't, God will remove them, we see in the Bible eventually. And then the other thing is, you, you know, even that couldn't stop the church in America if the believers were reading the Bible on their own. But we're not reading it enough in America. We're going and listening to the preachers who aren't giving full revelation. And listen, if I get to choose between you listening to me and you being in the word of God every day, thank God I don't have to choose between that because it's the will of God for both. But if I, if I had to choose, I'd choose you being in the word every day because the Holy Spirit speaks to you, reveals his truth, his moral truth, his truth of grace and love. And Paul said, I want you to increase in the knowledge of God. First Peter 2, as newborn babies desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And when we grow in the knowledge of him, when we grow in the knowledge of his word, it's fertile soil for fruit to come out of our lives because we're just being filled with his truth. And then this next one is similar but different. 
that, that, that one there was increase in knowing and, and the next one is obeying. It's one thing to know something. It's another thing to do what you know, right? Sometimes we have major trials in our life because we know what the word says, but we don't really want to do it. I like it when people come in here and they get saved and their, their lives are changed and they're rescued from peril. I think, I think I like prevention more than cure. I'd rather see a man being covered by the word of God and in accountability with believers and in the right place in, in, in church and in the word and being protected from pornography. I'd rather see that than a person who falls headlong into pornography and then is rescued from God, by God. Rescue, being rescued by God is great but there's some serious damage that pornography can do before you get there. And so the word of God and obeying the word of God protects us from trouble that comes our way. You get into pornography, you start to visualize, then your heart starts to wander, then you start looking, and then eventually, people don't believe this, but eventually you stay in pornography long enough, the enemy puts you on a gradual decline and his whole purpose is to destroy you and move you to acting like that, not just looking at it. And when you act like it, everything falls apart in your life. And God will forgive and God will love, but guess what? You wake up, you've slept with a couple women, your family's gone. You can walk in here, God will save you, he'll bless you, he'll forgive you, but your family's gone. And so this is not just knowing that brings fertile soil for fruit, but it's doing. It's acts of righteousness. And it's it's doing. Obedience helps us to be fruitful. He said, live a life worthy. Worthy has to do, that Greek word there uh, speaks of scales. And on one side, you, you, you weigh what Christ has done for you with an all-out full commitment, giving everything and dying for your sin. And the other side, you weigh what's your response to that. Now, you, you can't give what he gave you, but you can give your everything because he gave his everything to you. And so that's the scale is, are you giving everything to the one who's giving everything to you? And, and part of that is, if you are, that word worthy is to live a life like that. Ephesians 5.8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So fruit has to do, righteousness has to do with acting right or right acts. It means not only to be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. While we were on vacation, my son, who's... Uh, technology genius, at least compared to me. Um, don't have to know a lot to be better than me in that area. But, but he's really good. And somehow he hooked up on our uh, DVD player in our car. We have one in our car. He hooked up the Wii to that thing. And so, you know, he and Candace are back there playing video games. And I usually drive. And he says, hey, you want to play? And we had just bought this new Mario game. This is a newer version. Some of you played that way back. And I played that in my day. And I thought, hey, I can play a little Mario. So I stepped back there to show my stuff and Aaron was Mario and I was Luigi and Karen took off driving. We're going down the road playing this game and I noticed right away, Mario is way better than Luigi. I couldn't believe that Aaron gave me Luigi and took Mario because Mario was performing so much better. And, and along the way, it became obvious that I was, I was um, we were playing as a team and I was a serious hindrance to the team. I mean, it was just becoming obvious, you know. And So Aaron, as patient as he could be, said, to, hey, Dad, uh, how about if I tell you what to do and you like do it? And I said, well, 
okay, I could, I could try that. So, you know, we're going along and I'm bumping and grinding and falling and, and not doing well. And he's ahead of me and saying, come on. And, and then something was pushing up behind me and I didn't know it. And he said, go. And in a panic, I just moved forward and fell to my video peril. And I, and I looked over there and he went. I said, well, you said go. Not go there. It reminded me of the Smothers Brothers, that comedy routine of twins. Some of you have seen them years ago. This dates me a little bit, but I saw them at the fair about a decade ago, and one of them was saying to the other, do you do everything he tells you to do? He said, well, yeah. And he said, well, if he told you to jump off a cliff, would you jump? He said, well, not again. <laughs> and it's interesting in life. I find, I find it interesting that when a psychologist says, jump, we'll jump. When a self-help book says, jump or go, we jump. When a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus says, well, I think you should do this, we jump sometimes. When a spouse says, jump, look, a spouse can say, jump, when the Lord's not saying it at all. We need to move together asking the Lord what he wants for all these circumstances. And we're, gonna, we're just jumping at what everybody, here's the deal. How about when God says, go? How about when God says, jump? Because when we jump, when he says jump, and we go where he goes, then fruit comes to our, into our lives. Then blessing comes. That sense of, you, you know that feeling, that gnawing feeling of emptiness? It goes away when we move into the things that God asks us to move into. Obedience is something that God's really interested in for us because it cultivates soil where fruit can be born. Philippians 1, filled with the fruit of righteousness, that's right acts, that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So come close to Jesus through prayer and the word. Through obedience, it's, it cultivates a soil where fruit is born. I heard a great, a great story. Some of you know Bob and Mina in this church. It's a great couple. And we had lunch with them um, this week. She fixed just a great lunch for us and we asked her about her story and how she came to Christ. She told us about early on in her life, she got married when she was young and her husband was unfaithful. And that marriage ended. And with it, um, she became disillusioned, not only with life, um, but, but about God. God, why did you let this happen? Don't we hear that a lot in life? A lot of people are feeling that, God, where are you? What, what happened? Why did you let this happen? And, and then we said, well, how, how, did you, how did you come back to God or how did you find Jesus? Because she decided not to go to church anymore. She thought, well, I'll just do my own thing. Those Christians are a bunch of hypocrites anyway. We hear that a lot in life too now these days. And um, she said, well, there was this lady uh, in, in my neighborhood that befriended me. And she was a Christian. And she was really nice. And she would call and talk to me and then she started coming over and we would visit and she was really loving. And then we started watching uh, some Christian TV and she started answering questions for me. She said eventually she was coming around so much and she was so loving and so kind and so nice. I thought, I want what she has. And what she had was Jesus. And she said, I had to come to the conclusion that God didn't do anything to me. It was my husband that was unfaithful, not God. And because of her neighbor's sweet spirit, 
and a constant appearance of caring for her, she gave her heart to Jesus Christ. She eventually remarried. She's been married to Bob for many, many years, happily married, and a faithful, fruitful Christian. I heard that story and I thought, now there's some fruit. And here, here's the deal. What moved me most about that story was the lady. Who is this lady that, that has so many things in life to do, but she lays them down because Jesus says, over here. Where does she live? I want to know her. I would like to meet that lady when I get to heaven. What kind of person spends that much time with a hurting, wounded person so they can come to Jesus? And the answer is, a lot of you are that person. You hear the whisper of Jesus. Say, speak and go. And love and call. And you go. And people come to Jesus. I want to bear fruit in my life. I want us to bear fruit. I love people like the ones who reached out to Mina who are bearing fruit and I know God is pleased when it happens. Third thought here today. I always preach long when I come back from this uh, big break. Um, Hey, what can I say? I'm relaxed. Here we are, here we go. But I'll try to move quick here. Third thought, and this is really exciting to me. Because it's, it's a, I think it'll be a bit of revelation to some today. God wants us to be strengthened in his power. Now you, you think of power and hey, you know, you know power, right? You know healings, uh, you know salvations, that's power. But the context of power in here is very different than most charismatics, Pentecostals, who probably know power. It's a different context than they think in. Look at it. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now look what it speaks of as power, what power brings, so that you may have great endurance, patience, and joyfully. Okay, you've thought about power, but have you thought about the power of the Holy Spirit giving you strength to endure? Have you thought about the power of the Holy Spirit giving you strength to be patient? It's saying that the power of God, his mighty strength brings these things. Well, guess what? We all need that, don't we? This word, um, it, power in this passage, being strengthened with all power, it says in verse 11. Uh, it means this, it means in the Greek, manifested strength. It's ongoing, it's perpetual, it's consistent. It's not a spurt, it's not a season, it's always there. We went to see a, a fireworks display. We're hanging out with some friends on the 4th of July and we saw some fireworks shooting up high in the neighborhood, so we walked a couple blocks, and man, it was right here in Tualatin. There's a block here. I won't say which one it is because it's illegal, but they, and I just, you know, I can't believe people do illegal things, but I was happy because I could watch it, and I wasn't sinning, and it was cool, you know, so, so there, there I was, you know, watching this tremendous display, and I thought, man, this block probably spent a few thousand dollars, and here's how it works. You, you get a load of some sort of, uh, you know, gunpowder in there or something, it shoots up and then bam, it's beautiful for just a moment, it's gone. And there's power. That's how rockets work. You fill them with fuel or, or, or powder and, and there'll be an explosion, but it, then it's gone. And this is not like power that's just there and gone. It's not like dynamite. It's not even like nuclear, which goes powerful and then it disappears. This word is saying that this power is continuous. Well, what that makes me think is if it's continuous, guess what? I'm not continually in the power. What's the problem? The problem is I'm not always connecting 
to this continual flow of power. But it's there for me. It's there for us. And this power is so great, it not only brings miracles, it not only brings great things that happen in our life with salvation and, and, and healings and things we can see around us, it brings endurance. Here's what that word endurance means. Um, endurance and patience, you'd think they're the same, but they're not. In the Greek, endurance means um, endurance when circumstances are difficult. So endurance has to do with circumstances, but the word patient has to do with people. It has to do with putting up with difficult people. Now, don't you have hard seasons in your life that are hard to get through where you need the power of God to help you? What he wants you to know is, hey, I, I want to help you with endurance and I have the power of my Holy Spirit to help you through this season if you'll just tap into me. And then there are difficult, who, who doesn't have difficult people? Karen has me. You know, you, you have... You have others, but at least difficult seasons where people are hard, but sometimes that boss, that family member, that mom, that dad, and they mean well, but it's, you know, it's just difficult. How do you get through times like that? Isn't it awesome to know that the power of the Holy Spirit and His mighty strength, this, this sustainable, uh, perpetual power is available to help you through the hard season in life, and it's available to help you with hard people. It's beyond your own ability. Ephesians 1 says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power. Let me say that again. This is that perpetual strength. His incomparably great power for us who believe. He has the power to help you through that difficult season. Now, it seems like it's good enough to just get the power, right? Um... To be helped through a difficult season and help in, uh, deal with the, uh, it's, by the way, that word patient is the opposite of revenge. Uh, it means uh, letting God do his thing through a season rather than taking things in your own hands with difficult people. And um, eventually God in his timing shows us everything that needs to happen. And he's just, he's not only full of grace, but he's just too. And he's patient. But, but we get his results if we, if we walk in his patience. But he gives us strength for that. But not only will he help me through a hard season and help me with difficult people by his power, but then this last part, the word joyfully. What? That God can give you joy in the midst of this difficult thing you're enduring? Now I'm gonna tell you something. You can't get this kind of joy that this Bible speaks of anywhere else in life. I, I wanna recommend this joy over what you've known with the American term happiness. And here's why. Happiness, the root word, is happens. Some of you have heard me share this teaching before, but I think it's profound for our lives and it can help us. So something good has to happen for you to be happy. Question, will good things always happen in your life? Yeah, if you've been around long, you know the answer to that. No. In this world, you will have trouble. That's what the Bible says. Someday heaven, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, but there's trouble in life. So happiness, if you, you can't be happy all the time because good things won't happen all the time. You can be happy for periods of time. So I wanna recommend something beyond happiness that's way better called joy. And it comes from the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joy is not dependent on the circumstances. It's not dependent on people treating you right. It's not dependent upon the circumstances of hard things that are going on. 
Joy is a miraculous gift from God and it happens when we get with him and tap into the power. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I tell you, I've walked through difficult seasons sometimes where the power of the Lord was helping me endure but I didn't get that whole joyful thing attached to it. But here's what I find when I get with God in that difficult season or I'm dealing with a difficult person and I kneel down and talk to him His power will come and his peace will come and I'll get up and the circumstances will be exactly the same. Nothing's changed, but my spirit's changed. And somehow I have joy. And here's the joy. When I'm with God, it's like he reveals to me this, this confidence that something good can come out of the difficult circumstance. And so when I'm with him, I get this confident expectation and hope that all things can work together for good as long as we just stay in him. I wrote it this way. And skip ahead, I'll I'll fall back to that verse. uh, PowerPoint, I'm moving around here a little bit. But when I'm in close connection with Jesus and fulfilling his purpose for my life, I have this confident hope that God is bringing about good through the struggle and this brings me joy even though I'm in a difficult place. And now let's go back to the scripture in James 1. Put that up on the screen if you would. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Now, this joy is not a denial of the difficulty of the circumstance, right? Because that would be dumb. I mean, God's not saying deny that it's hard. This joy is, is miraculous, so even though the circumstances are incredibly hard. You know when the, you've heard the term joy unspeakable? Peace that passes all understanding. When you get with God, you get peace that passes all understanding, joy that's unspeakable. I'd like to explain that peace to you, but I, I, no one fully understands it. And I would like to uh, be able to articulate what joy's like, but it's really unspeakable because it's this thing that comes from the Holy Spirit that just helps you through the season, even though, even though it's hard. Not denying it's hard, even though it's hard. And it's this confident expectation if someone has died that I'll see them again. Or that results could happen where people turn their hearts to the Lord because life's a vapor. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. And none of us have any guarantees. Everything we decide about Jesus can only be decided while we're alive. When you're gone, it's over. And so we can see these things that are hard happening and and, and the Bible says, um, that, that in, in Proverbs that it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting for death is the destiny of every man. What? What does that mean? Better to go to a party, better to go to a funeral than a party for death is the destiny of every man. What's that mean? That means that in circumstances that are very difficult, people tend to take a look at their lives and say, what am I doing and where am I going? Pastor Roger did a memorial service here a while back where over 20 people came to Christ. Why? Well, because they wanted to go see the person that, was, that had left this earth. But more than that, they wanted to surrender their hearts to Christ because they realized life's a vapor. And um, I'm getting off here a little bit, but hopefully that's ministering to, to, to someone here today. Hebrews 12, 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now look at this. He was on the cross, scorning its shame. Who for the joy set before him. Now here he is in an incredible trial of his life. But we know that that trial produced a crop that has been his greatest joy. You know what the joy set before him was? Jew. Who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And then it goes on to say, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That amazing trial was willed by God the Father to pay the price for my sin and for yours so that the grace of God could be applied and we could be forgiven and set free and now live with the Father. Be restored, that mankind could be restored to God. So when we go through hard things, we may not have joy, but we can, in this immediate moment of the circumstances, it wouldn't, you can't, I mean, why would you have joy with a hard thing? But you have a joy that the Lord is with you and that he's gonna work out some beautiful things beyond what you can imagine if you walk with him, trust him, and tap into that power source. Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. If we don't have joy, what don't we have? If we don't have the joy of the Lord, we don't have strength. I've been there. Well, I didn't have the joy of the Lord. Walking in my faith, I'm, I still had faith, but I didn't have the joy of the Lord. And guess what I didn't have in those moments, in those seasons? Uh, my strength felt totally sapped. But the scriptures remind me, and isn't that the great thing about the scriptures? To get with him, to let his spirit permeate my heart and life. Oh God, you're so good and so loving. Strengthen us with your mighty power. Do you need the joy of the Lord to face a difficult circumstance? Ask Jesus to help you in this season. So God wants us to pray for others. He wants us to come close to him. He wants us to bear fruit in our lives and he wants us to be strengthened with his mighty power. That's what this passage is telling us today. I've told this story before, but I feel the Lord would want me to tell it again today. Years ago, Karen and I went to the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. George W. Bush was speaking and we sat with thousands and it was kind of a cool experience uh, to hear other speakers come up and they were giving glory to God and it's not what you think about D.C. So it was kind of cool to, to get there and see some people with a heart for God. But afterwards, we just became tourists and we went to the Capitol building and we went into the National Mall there where they have the statues and murals and there's that big round room. It's the room we were in and there were several tour guides with their blue blazers and their khaki pants and white shirts and red ties and they were giving tours and we were walking around. I was kind of moved by it all. You know, you see scriptures and things in Washington, D.C. that show our roots and um, it, it, was, it was a cool experience. But we met this one guy named Daniel. I'm sorry, Joseph. And um, we listened to him and he was kind of fun and humorous. He was very good at what he did. He had a small crowd. And then he, he, we engaged him in conversation. He started to speak to just Karen and I. And um, I felt the Lord speak to my heart and say, I want you to speak to him about me. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm just a tourist today, Lord. 
And uh, this is a weird place to do that, you know. My, you may think like me. Most of the time I think it'd be great if we could have eight or ten meetings and some coffee and get to know each other. And then, and then perhaps the Lord will give me a spot to speak to you and you'll know I care about you because I've been with you. But is that what Jesus did with the woman at the well? <laughs> he didn't know her, you know, in the sense of relational. She didn't know him, maybe is a better way to say it. And... Um, he just spoke directly to her and I felt the Lord say, talk to him about me and I'm thinking, oh boy. So I thought, well, oh, I'd rather try and fail than fail by not trying. And so I, I said, um, you know, I, right now, Joseph, you gotta kind of work that out as you're going. I'm just feeling like the Lord wants me to, I'm a preacher, a pastor, and I feel like the Lord is speaking to my heart and saying he wants me to tell you that he knows what you're going through and he really loves you. And he started to tear up. And then he started to look around because he was becoming emotional. And um, he said, oh, I'm a lost cause. He must have been 55 or so. I was gonna say old, but I'm not far from that anymore, so it's not old now. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, I've lived a really bad life. I said, hey, me too. And Jesus forgave me and changed my life. I know he'll forgive you, Joseph, no matter what you've done. He said, no, no. And then he, he started to, to break almost to where it, it, I, I, I could tell I, I could be embarrassing him among his peers because there were other guides that were right around us. So I gave him a little space and just sat there with him silently for a moment. He collected himself and he said, uh, I'm gonna die. I've just been told that I, I've had hepatitis C and they told me I... It's going to take my life. And I said, well, hey, I can see. Now, doesn't it make sense why Jesus wants me to talk to him today because I'm on a plane tomorrow and I won't get to be with Joseph. Now it makes sense. And um, I, I said, well, man, Jesus loves you. And he's, he, I believe, you know, I came here to be a tourist today, but I believe God's main purpose for me being here is you because he wants you to know how he feels about you and you're not understanding that he loves you. And then I felt the Lord say, Ask him to come to me. And I thought, isn't this just a little quick? You know, we're just, we're just five, ten minutes in here. And, and, uh, but I'm thinking, oh, boy. And Karen's, Karen's right there with me, and she's partnering by praying. And uh, I said, hey, Joseph, I don't, I don't have a lot of time. But I'm telling you, if you, just, if you invite him into your heart, he'll come in right now. Would, would you pray with me? And he looked around, he said, okay, but not here. And he took me behind the King Kamehameha statue in the mall. And behind the mall, I prayed with Joseph. And Joseph invited Christ into his heart. And I just felt led to pray that he would be healed. I mean, why not? We serve such an amazing, wonderful God. And um, I gave him the number of my friend Mark, who pastors in town there. And, and, and an address for the church somehow. I, I don't know how we got it, but I got him enough information. And then we left, and I called my friend Mark after Sunday, and I said, did a guy named Joseph show up? And he said, I don't know, I don't think so. A few weeks later, I called him again. I said, hey, did Joseph show up? And he said, I don't think so. And I was kind of bummed, because I didn't get his number. I gave him Mark's number, you know, and I couldn't really follow up on him. And so six months later, I see Mark again, and it just dawns on me, and I say, hey, did, did a guy, did that guy ever show up that, I told you came to Christ in the mall there and he said, I don't think so. 
I thought, wow, I don't know, I just have to trust the Lord. And he goes, wait a minute. Did you pray for him to be healed? I said, yeah, and he said, he came about three months after you told me to look for him. And I thought he was crazy, man. Because he came in saying that some guy led him to Jesus in the mall and he prayed a prayer, but months later he went to the doctor and the test said that the hepatitis is gone. So he only came to church after he found out the hepatitis had been healed because he wanted to give glory to God. And Mark said, I gotta be honest with you, I thought he was wacko. (laughs) I thought he must be making this up. Now, you may not believe that story. It's kind of unbelievable almost, isn't it? But for goodness sake, we pray that people will be healed. Shouldn't we we just rejoice when the Lord does something good in in people's lives? I don't have the gift of healing. I'm going to tell you something. Nobody has the gift of healing but God. And he'll let that gift flow through people at times. Humble people who believe greatly in his power. So that means you're a candidate for healing to flow through you. Well... That was about a decade ago that that happened. And I was just thinking about that this week and I thought, I want more of that. I want more fruit in my life. I don't know where you're at today in your life, but I know this, if, if we'll come close to it, we'll just have peace and joy in our hearts even though there's difficult things. And then we'll just be going through life and all of a sudden he'll speak and we'll start to minister and he'll do incredible things. And so I... I'm saying to to, to you, to us, to me as a church, let's come alive. Let's come alive in Jesus. Let's walk with him, talk to him, feel his presence, and then let him move through our lives so he can show his greatness.